let's go ahead and open in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we want to thank you for your goodness, for your mercy, for your grace. Father, we want to thank you for teaching us patience and, and helping us to stretch ourselves and go above and beyond and that we were able to get this equipment up and running uh, without the experts. We thank you for all you've done and we ask that you would be with us now in this lesson. Open our hearts, open our minds, and help us to draw closer to you in all that we do and say in Yeshua's name. Amen. So, good morning. Uh, my lesson this morning is hypergrace. How did we get here? And you may have noticed that we've talked a lot about this notion of hypergrace lately. In fact, the last time I taught, I taught on helping to identify hypergrace, exactly what it is, how we can identify it, and what its dangers are. And then unbeknownst to me that morning, Rabbi Scott came up here and dealt with the same topic in his sermon. We've also talked about it in previous lessons. It's something that's very important. And it may be something that you've actually encountered, but really didn't know that it was there because you didn't really understand what it was because it can be made to sound very accepting, okay? If you've ever watched Christian TV, if you're prone to watch the ministers on television, you've probably encountered this. A lot of them are truly hyper-grace teachers. A lot of their teachings are very solid, but some of them will slip into this, this belief. And we've even had some of them that have gone so far as to say that the Ten Commandments have been done away with. Last time I checked, it's still a violation of God's law to murder someone, for example. But they say that... wants you to do the volume. Can we get the volume up a little bit? It's a little low. I'm having people signal up, up. <laughs> Sound, can you come up just a little bit? Is that, is that better? Is that doing better? Okay, good. Thank you very much, Whitley. In other words, what they're saying is that God's commandments are equated with doing the devil's work. And I think all of us would say resoundingly, no, that is not the case. Keeping God's commandments it's something we do because we love God and because that is his standard of righteousness. And it's bad enough for an individual in the body of Messiah to take that kind of position, but when it's someone who's in leadership, it's absolutely devastating because that person is in a position to influence a lot of folks, and that is exactly what is happening today. Here's the difference. Once upon a time, that teaching used to be on the fringes. Today, it's gone mainstream, and that's our challenge. If you haven't encountered it, I'll tell you right now, you will encounter it. And it's very likely that you've encountered it, as I said a few moments ago, but just didn't recognize it. Because sometimes this teaching is very subtle, and that's when it's the most dangerous because we can fall into it and go over this progression without even knowing where we're headed. I want you to think about that proverbial bad apple that spoils the whole bunch. There's this barrel full of luscious, delicious apples, and all of them are good except for that one, and that one is hiding somewhere way down on the bottom where you can't see it. What will happen to those other apples? If you don't see that bad apple and extract it, it will rot, and that rot will infect the other apples. That's exactly what can happen with hypergrace, and any, any false teaching, in fact. Let's talk about the frog and the boiling water. 
Now, I'm sure you've all heard this story, that you can take a pot of water and you can put the frog in it. If the water is hot when you put the frog in, he will jump out. If it's room temperature, he will stay in, and you can slowly turn up the heat to boiling, and he won't jump out. Now, I don't know if that's true or not. I've never tried it. I don't intend to try it. Some people say it's true. Some say it isn't. But the message is still applicable to us. When we're exposed to something in small doses, it's very easy to accept it and not recognize it for what it is. And over time, it can grow and grow and fester and become something that actually turns us away from God. That's why this perverted view of grace is so dangerous. Most strong believers would not go out and readily accept this teaching if it were presented for what it really is. But when they get a small taste of it, it can sound good and it can lead them into that wrong direction. Like a lot of things in life, it is a slippery slope. Can I get the next slide, please? Our iPad is also dead, <laughs> so I'm going to have to rely on the folks in the sound booth. When I last taught a few weeks ago, we talked about how to identify hypergrace and its dangers. And I recommended an excellent book on that source, which is the book you see on the screen now, Hypergrace, Exposing the Dangers of the Modern Grace Message. That's written by Dr. Michael L. Brown. And if you've been involved in the Messianic community for any length of time, you're probably familiar with him and his teachings. It's an excellent resource, and I highly recommend it. This morning, what I want to do is step back in time, and I want to explore what actually set the stage for this teaching to come onto the scene and develop. And in doing so, I'll rely on information from Dr. Brown's book as well as a few other sources. Can we get the next slide, please? Oh, we got the iPad. Okay, thank you. There's another iPad back there. I, okay, I should have known that smaller one was not the right one. It was dead. Thank you very much. In addition to Dr. Brown's book, I'll be relying on another book that's called How the Church Lost the Way and How It Can Find It Again by Steve Maltz, Acts 15 for the Practical Messianic by J.K. McKee, and First Fruits of Zion's Torah Club 6, Chronicles of the Apostles. One of the big problems with this teaching is that it essentially says, come as you are, stay as you are, sin and all, rather than presenting the true message of the Bible, which is to come as we are, but then be changed by the power of God's Holy Spirit so that we can be set apart for his work. Those are two very different concepts. And in my last teaching, I gave some examples of what happens when people fall into this false teaching. And I even read part of a letter that one woman who had attended one of these churches wrote to Dr. Brown. This lady explained to him how the people in that church had traded in their prayer meetings for movie nights, going so far as to go out to bars and even witness to the people at the bar while imbibing a little bit too much themselves, and how far they had since strayed from God's word even to the point of ridiculing her because she chose to stand firm to God's word. And a couple of weeks after that teaching, I ran upon a very interesting message on Facebook. Uh, there was a lady that posted to one of the leaders in the Messianic community about a church that she had recently attended as a visitor, 
And that church had just traded in its Friday night prayer meetings for martial arts night in order to appear cool to the world. Now let me ask you, which is more important, interceding for the lost, interceding for our world, or practicing martial arts? So today's lesson will be a detailed introduction to the topic of how we got here. We'll go deeper into this whole subject when I teach again, uh, and that will not be until April 6th. So we got a few weeks. But today will be a, a good, solid introduction to that lesson. And in these two classes, we're going to seek to answer two very important questions. First, where did this message of perverted grace come from, and why is it so prevalent today? When I teach, I like to let God's word tell the story, and I rely very heavily on scripture. These lessons, however, will be a little different. These are really more history lessons than they are Bible teaching. So while I will be using some scripture, a lot of it will be historical information. So let me ask you, while we're talking about history, who in here actually enjoyed history when they were in high school or college? got a few, a few hands. Most people not. I'll be honest with you, I did not. And I think the reason I didn't was because when you read those history books, they're so dry. They're so impersonal. But I found out when I attended college a few years ago that I actually enjoy history when it's presented in the right way. As some of you know, I was a non-traditional college student. And what that means is I didn't go to school, go to college straight out of high school. I went to college in the evening as an adult while working full time. I had always had an affinity for Oglethorpe University here in Metro Atlanta and always wished I could have attended that school. And guess what? Sometimes God gives us the desires of our heart when we least expect it. When I was 40 years old, he opened the doors. Oglethorpe had just started an adult evening program and I was able to go to Oglethorpe. And we had a professor there who was actually an Atlanta native, born and raised in Chambly, still lives there today, and he was actually an Oglethorpe graduate. He was a history teacher, also at that time was the dean. He knew everything about Atlanta history. So I took this Atlanta history class with him, and he had it structured so that we would spend part of our time in class, and the other part of the time we would be out on field trips going to the places that he was talking about. I ate it up. I was so sad when that class ended and I realized I actually do enjoy history. But you have to take it and understand it in a different way than those textbooks try to give it to you when it's really boring. When you present it in the right way it is interesting and that's what I'm trying to do this morning because this is history and I want to present it in a way that's relevant and interesting to you while still getting the message across. And while it is important that we know what hypergrace is and how to avoid its pitfalls, I covered that a few weeks ago, so I'm not going to backtrack and delve into that. So if you missed it, I would recommend one of two things. Either go back and watch that teaching or get Dr. Brown's book that I mentioned a few years ago. A few, few years ago. Excuse me, a few moments ago. And he, he goes into so much more than I was able to in that class. And hang on just a second. I need to skip ahead. We got started like so. There's something here that I've thrown in just for fun that I'm going to skip. Okay, when we talk about hypergrace, unfortunately, it is very prevalent, as I said a few moments ago. What we see is a lot of these teachers claim that Paul 
push this message of grace, 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 everything is grace, and you don't have to keep the law. That's not true. When you really study God's word and look at it in its truth and proper context, Paul actually taught against the misuse of grace, which is what a lot of these teachers do. We also see Yeshua's half-brothers, James and Jude, in their letters teaching against hypergrace. And I'll give you just one quick example. Jude warned his readers in chapter 1, verse 4, For certain people have secretly slipped in, those who from long ago have been marked out for this judgment. They are ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into indecency and deny our only Master and Lord, Yeshua the Messiah. Remember, they basically teach, come as you are, sins and all, and stay as you are. We'll accept you. It's, all, it's about including people and not, people not feeling excluded. It's not about trying to transform them into the image of God's Son. Newsflash. This distorted view of grace didn't just appear when Yeshua came onto the scene. The climate into which it would grow and flourish was actually put into place centuries before during the so-called silent years between the closing of the Old Testament and the opening of the New Testament. And we're going to talk about that at length in a few minutes. The fact that we have so much written in the New Testament about the misuse of grace, and I just gave you one example of many, confirms that this perverted message was indeed around in the beginning of the Messianic faith. So it isn't anything new. Sometimes we think it just arose in the first century. It didn't. What is new is that historically, as I said earlier, it's been accepted only by fringe groups, but today it is mainstream. So in order to understand how this message took root and why it is so prevalent today, we need a basic understanding of Gnosticism because it is in this false teaching that our modern hypergrace has its origins. And in his book, Dr. Brown explains the Gnostic belief like this, and I want to quote, the Gnostics believed that the material world itself was evil to the point that they claimed that the God of the Old Testament was a lesser God, an inferior being who emanated from Adonai called the Demiurge. In their minds, pure spirit could not interact directly with material things, so there had to be an intermediary, secondary God who created the universe. For the Gnostics, then, the God of the Old Testament was not the father of Yeshua, while the Son of God himself, as a spirit being who entered the fleshly body of Yeshua at his baptism and then left the physical body before the crucifixion, leaving only a mere human being to be crucified. Now, I hope each and every person under the sound of my voice can readily see the problems with this description that Dr. Brown gives. This belief is wrong in so many ways, and it's totally opposed to God's word. The term Gnosticism comes from the Greek word for knowledge, which is gnosis. Gnostics claim to have a special revelation, a deeper and more spiritual understanding of the faith. Does that sound familiar? Have we ever heard that from any of these teachers? The dictionary of the New Testament background reveals that in the view of Gnosticism, and again, I want to quote, the material creation, including the body, was regarded as inherently evil. Sparks of divinity, however, had been encapsulated in the bodies of certain pneumatic, that is, charismatically gifted, 
are spiritual individuals who were ignorant of their celestial origins. The transcendent God sent down a redeemer who brought them salvation in the form of secret gnosis knowledge. Gnostics hoped to escape from the prison of their bodies at death and to traverse the planetary sphere of hostile demons to be reunited with God. So what all this means is that the Gnostics saw themselves as truly spiritual, but they viewed the followers of Yeshua as being fleshly. New Testament scholars point out that Gnostics also tended to define sin in various ways. Hence, some Gnostics believed that they were incapable of committing real sins. Although their bodies could engage in behavior that non-Gnostic Christians considered sinful, and we talked about that at length in the last teaching. We actually have some teachers out there teaching that very thing today. So this does sound very familiar. Same can be said of many of these modern-day hyper-grace teachers. But it does not mean that all of the hyper-grace teachers are Gnostics, and I want to make that, that distinction there, because to the contrary, many of these teachers are very much followers of God. They're sincere in loving him and wanting to follow him. They just have some erroneous teachings, because none of us are perfect. But there are some of them who are dangerously close to the beliefs of the Gnostics, and we need to be aware of that. And even a very small group of them who have unfortunately transitioned into full-blown heresy and a deception that is very, very close to Gnosticism. And you may have noticed that I referred to Gnosticism during the time of the apostles, first century. But earlier, I mentioned that the stage was actually set before then, approximately 400 years before the birth of Yeshua. That means that these teachings that led to Gnosticism were around long before the first century. So I want to talk about the origins of those beliefs. This is where it really starts to get interesting. To do this, we need to backtrack a bit and go back to ancient Greece. And I want to borrow a story from Steve Maltz's book. If you have ever tried to clean something that's been contaminated with grease, you know it takes a very strong cleaner to do the job. And the same is true with the body of Messiah. We have been contaminated by grease, but not G-R-E-A-S-E. We've been contaminated by G-R-E-E-C-E, -E, specifically Greek thinking. And removing the Greek influence from our faith will be even more difficult than removing grease from our clothing or furniture. Greek ideas have influenced the body of Messiah to the point that we see believers who are so spiritually minded that, to borrow an O-line, they are no earthly good. They have little impact on society. And on the other hand, we see believers who are so identified with the world that they have become carnal and they have no real testimony at all. And I use Mr. Maltz's book as part of my research for this lesson. And it has something very interesting about this book. You may have noticed the title. It was how the church lost the way and how it can find it again. And I want to clarify something because he starts out his book with this very thing. He is not in any way demeaning the church. He's a Christian man, but he's also Jewish. So he does not in any way denigrate the church, even though the title makes it sound that way. He 
Actually, I'm going to talk about in a minute about where that title came from because it's very interesting. You, and let's go ahead, actually, let's go ahead and talk about it now. You may recall from your study of scriptures that the original group of Yeshua followers referred to themselves not as Christians, but as the way. Okay? Hence the title, How the Church Lost the Way and How It Can Find It Again. Very early in its history, the majority of the body of Messiah went from being known as the way, as in Yeshua is the way, the truth, and the life, and he is the only way to the Father, to being referred to as the church, which is interesting because you may find this surprising. I really did when I learned this. The Greek word for church never appears in the Greek versions of our scriptures. Did you know that? That word is not there. And I want to go down a very quick rabbit trail on this because I think this is important to point out. The word ekklesia that we have been taught means church does not. It means literally congregation or assembly. There is a word that's the equivalent of the English word church in Greek, and that is kyriakos, K-Y-R-I-A-K-O-S. Beautiful meaning. It means belonging to the Lord. And it's important to note that the Greek word kyriakos did not even, catch this, did not even come into being until the 16th century. That was long after New Testament times. So, the Greek word for church does not appear in the original New Testament writings, despite what we've been taught. Instead of using that literal translation of congregation or assembly for ecclesia, modern translators have used this word church since the 16th century, which is a good word, but unfortunately it's constructed in the minds of modern Bible readers a false wall of separation between the Jewish people of the first century and the first century followers of Yeshua. And that's something that didn't exist. When you go back and study, you see that they actually worshipped in the synagogues along with the Jewish people. But when you read the New Testament today with that word church thrown in, you think it's a completely separate entity. It was not. So now back to our study. Why did Maltz use this title? Not only did the Yeshua movement eventually stop being known as the way, it also lost touch with its Jewish origins, which I don't think will come as a surprise to any of us. And that resulted in many of its adherents accepting the false teaching of replacement theology. Romans 1.16 tells us, For I am not ashamed of the good news, since it is God's powerful means of bringing salvation to everyone who keeps on trusting, to the Jew especially, but equally to the Gentile. You will hear the first half of this verse proclaimed in many churches. For I am not ashamed of the good news, since it is God's powerful means of bringing salvation to everyone who keeps on trusting. I know we've all heard it. But it's much less common to hear that last part of the verse referring to the Jews and then the Gentiles. It is also uncommon to hear many of your churches teach on Romans chapters 9 through 11. A lot of times they just skip those chapters because those chapters focus on the role and the future of the Jews. It is unfortunately true that there has been an official concerted effort to strip out every trace of Jewishness from both our faith and our scriptures since the fourth century. 
and a careful reading of the apostolic scriptures will reveal that this tendency actually began on a smaller scale as early as the time of the apostles in the first century. That is why translations such as the complete Jewish Bible and the Tree of Life version, which confront us with the Jewishness of both the Word of God and our Messiah, are so important. They help to restore some of what's been lost over the centuries. Eradicating the Jewishness of our faith puts us on dangerous ground because it is in direct opposition to God's body for the, his desire for his body. Ephesians 2, 14 through 16 tells us what his plan is for the body. For he is our shalom, the one who made the two into one and broke down the middle wall of separation. Within his flesh, he made powerless the hostility. The law code of mitzvot, good deeds, contained in regulations. He did this in order to create within himself one new man from the two groups, making shalom, and to reconcile both to God in one body through the cross, by which he put the hostility to death. In other words, God's intent was for the body of Messiah to be comprised of both Jews and Gentiles, not Gentiles and Jews who had chosen to leave behind Judaism. That's important. Acts chapter 15 focuses on the Jerusalem Council, and I did a detailed teaching of that last year based on J.K. McKee's work, Acts 15 for the Practical Messianic. So I won't go into great detail then, but there are a few key points I want to re reiterate from that book. The council was comprised of Peter, who had received the vision of the sheep coming down from heaven and who was instrumental in leading Cornelius, a God-fearing Gentile, and his family to faith in Yeshua. And that was really the turning point of this fledgling faith that now the Gentiles started coming in in great number. Also, there was Paul and Barnabas, who were defending their outreach to the Gentiles. We see James, the half-brother of Yeshua and head of the Jerusalem congregation, as well as the ultra-conservative Pharisees who were trying to force the Gentiles to convert to Judaism because they truly believed conversion was necessary before a Gentile could receive salvation. What we need to understand is that the Gentiles at issue here were pagans. They were, had been worshiping a multitude of false gods. The earlier Gentiles that had more or less moved into Judaism were almost exclusively God-fearers who were already familiar with the Torah. So we had two different sets of Gentiles. But as the gospel began to spread, as Paul and Barnabas went out on their missionary trips and more Gentiles came into the faith, they, we saw larger and larger numbers of Gentiles who had absolutely no familiarity with the Torah coming into the faith. Those were the Gentiles that were being referred to here in Acts 15. Prior to coming to faith in Yeshua, these Gentiles would have been involved in all kinds of things that were in opposition to God's word, including idol worship, sexual promiscuity, things such as temple prostitution and infidelity, eating non-kosher foods that had not been properly killed and then the blood drained, and perhaps even eating blood as part of the ancient pagan ceremonies. In order to help these new converts feel welcome and not discourage them, James took the position that they should not be expected to become Torah scholars overnight. A yoke of legalism should not be imposed and they should be welcomed into the fellowship of the synagogue. But 
Certain prohibitions were put in place by James for the new believers to separate them from their previous sin-filled lives. Specifically, they were to abstain from the contamination of idols. Sexual immorality, what is strangled, and blood. These four prohibitions would remove the new non-Jewish believers from their pagan associations and temples and move them instead into the Jewish synagogue where they could learn from Torah and find out how to conduct their lives in a way that would please God and allow fellowship with the Jewish believers. Although there were varying degrees of adherence to Judaism by the Jewish people of the first century, there was the extreme conservative view, as well as some who were willing to compromise their religious views in order to fellowship with these Gentiles, there were three areas where no compromise was possible. Those areas were idolatry. How many times did God warn against idolatry? The shedding of blood and incest. Those four prohibitions issued by James encompassed all three of these areas. By changing their behavior, the Jewish believers would be allowed to fellowship with these new Gentile converts without compromising their faith. They would be able to instruct these new believers and to help them grow into Torah-observant people. Verse 21 of Acts chapter 15 adds a statement that many Bible teachers tend to overlook, and it's important and critical to understanding this. That verse reads, For Moses, from ancient generations, has had in every city those who proclaim him, since he is read in all the synagogues every Shabbat. In other words, as these new Gentile believers associated with these Jewish believers and they attended the synagogue each week, they would learn more and more of God's word and God's timing so that his plan for the Gentile nations would be fulfilled. It would be easy to say that the conversion of many Gentiles into the new fledgling faith laid the groundwork for what we know today as hypergrace. However, that would be much too simplistic because the roots of the problem didn't appear in the first century, as I stated earlier. They go back even further. So now, let's go ahead and take that trip down memory lane and see what happened. If you look at biblical history, you will see that God chose the Jewish people to be his own treasured possession. But the relationship between him and the people was very turbulent. They would turn to him. Then they would fall into disobedience, sometimes even to the point of idol worship. We just read about the golden calf last week, or week before last, excuse me, we talked about it last Saturday. He would punish them. Then they would repent and return, and we see this cycle over and over again through the years. But then, in 397 B.C., something happened. The last of the Tanakh was written and God fell silent for approximately 400 years. This is what's referred to as the silent years. There was no more scripture written. There was no prophecy. There was no divine visitation. Then Adonai returns and instructs the angel Gabriel to appear to Zechariah in the temple, announcing the birth of Zechariah's son, who would become John the Immerser, or John the Baptist, as many of us know him. But while God may have been silent during those 400 years, guess what? Our enemy was not. 
He was busy laying the groundwork for what would eventually give Bible teachers the liberty to twist and to distort the scriptures, especially in the area of grace. So exactly what happened during those 400 years? The book of Malachi, which was the last book of the Tanakh to be written, was completed in 397 BC, and that's where we see this line drawn. Malachi was a prophet, he was a strong voice for God, and was their last chance to return to Adonai before he fell silent. We talked a bit about Moss's book a few moments ago, and in that text, he provides a really good description of the days after Malachi, so I want to read that verbatim. Artaxerxes II was ruling the mighty Persian Empire. The Romans were slowly building up their republic. The Carthaginians were suffering defeats. King An of Zhu was bossing China. And in Athens, Socrates, the first great philosopher of the modern age was nearing the end of his controversial but influential life. And this is where we go next because the spotlight in these days of silence switches from Israel to Greece. Okay, now the reality is that the philosophers had actually been on the scene for a couple of centuries before Socrates arrived. But there's a big difference. Those early philosophers were focused on the world around them and they had sought to find answers to questions such as, is the world made up of earth, air, fire, and water? Or are there smaller building blocks? Does mathematics govern everything? What about poetry? Socrates, however, changed all that. He taught the people to look within, at their moral beings, at what makes us humans tick. As an example of how this focus became, became, okay, I wrote something really funky here. <laughs> As an example of how this focus became involved on humans and not the world around us, I want you to consider this quote that I'm about to read. At work, we have this program where we're able to track our steps, log them up, and we get credit towards our HSA each year. When I signed on to the site yesterday, there's usually these little inspirational quotes. This one particular quote popped up. It was from Socrates' most famous student that we'll talk about in a few moments, Plato. This is an example of how the focus changed from the world to the individual. The quote is this, lack of activity destroys the good condition of every human being, while movement and methodical, methodolical physical exercise save it and preserve it. Nothing wrong with that, I mean it's true, okay? Socrates became a familiar figure on the streets of Athens because these are the types of things that he taught. He taught the rich young men of his days in the public spaces and his teachings were focused on logic and the ability to reason. And on the plus side, he led the people to abandon the sorry, pathetic, and argumentative bunch of Greek gods. Positive, but guess what? It came as a price for Socrates because he was condemned to death by his own government for corrupting the youth and neglecting the gods. So let's talk about Plato. I just gave you a quote from him a few moments ago. He was undoubtedly Socrates' most famous student. Plato founded the very first academy where he taught mathematics, geometry, law, and the natural sciences, as well as philosophy. 
He also wrote, and a lot of his works focused on the ideas of Socrates. So he's the one that really got Socrates' ideas out there so that we have a record of them today. Now, you may be wondering why I've regressed. We're talking about the Bible and, and religion, and yeah, I'm talking about Socrates and Plato and philosophers. And there's a reason, because you don't usually see these connected with the church, but they are. Maltz points out in his book that Plato's ideas, which came from Socrates, most of them, became almost as influential as Yeshua's in the development of Western Christianity. Does that surprise anybody? I know it surprised me. And Maltz does a really good job in his book presenting a compelling argument for that position. As he puts it, Plato had one big idea that got into the fertile soil of early Christianity and grew and grew. That idea is known as the theory of forms. Didn't know you were going to learn about forms when you came in here today, did you? Do any of you remember studying about the theory of forms? We're going to talk about that for just a moment. It's actually pretty interesting and it's central to understanding how the Greek philosophy made its way into religion. Simply put, Plato believed that there were two worlds. There's this world that we see, which is imperfect. And there's another wor world, one that is perfect. In, this, in his view, everything on this earth was simply an imperfect copy of what is in the perfect world. Now, let me ask you, given what we've been reading the past few weeks in the Torah, does any of this sound familiar? Yeah, it should. We also believe there's a physical world that we're living in right now. And there's another world, a better and perfect world, where our God resides. And as an example of what Plato is saying, because I know sometimes this can get a little, little strange, a little hard to grasp, notice that in the sanctuary we have chairs. Okay? These chairs, according to Plato, are simply copies of those perfect chairs that are in that other world. It's the same with everything you can see in this world. Physical items like chairs, geometric shapes like squares and rectangles, and concepts like beauty and goodness, they all exist in both of these worlds, in an imperfect form here and a perfect form there. As an example of the similarities between Plato's theory of forms and the Word of God, we recently read in our Parsha where God himself showed Moses the tabernacle and the furnishings in heaven so that Moses could have copies of them made for inclusion in the tabernacle here on earth. Plato also believed that most people would never get to see these forms, but that a few would. They were the enlightened ones, the ones who were the philosophers, of course. And he explained his view of this in his analogy of the cave. And according to him, our lives are as prisoners deep inside a cave, where all we can see of objects are their shadows, projected on the wall by a fire. We believe that what we see is reality, but we are mistaken. To see reality, we have to leave the cave and see things as they really are. Though most are content at just seeing the shadow shapes inside the cave. Plato believed that the person who steps outside the cave is the guardian and that he would be rewarded by viewing the higher good, quote unquote, the source of all truth and reason. Now, when you step back and you look at it, this entire concept vaguely resembles our faith. So it's easy to see how his ideas began to find their way into Christian thought. But his views deviated from ours in some very important ways. 
Let's talk about the higher good. That was Plato's ultimate form, his concept of God, although it was not the personal God that we know. Plato taught that we must aspire to this higher good. So even though Plato's God was impersonal, did not answer prayers, or comfort those in distress, or teaches people to listen to the cries of the heart, and he is assuredly not the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God that we serve, there was still space in Plato's teachings for the concept of God, and so that made it appealing. Plato actually believed in many of the same things we do. He believed in goodness. He believed in morality and truth, with each of them existing as a perfect form in the perfect world and an imperfect form here on this earth. And he also believed in the eternal soul. So a lot of similarities there between his philosophy and the church, and the teachings of scripture. But then we see a big deviation again. Plato believed that human beings are body and soul, with the soul being eternal and dominant. To him, the eternal soul was reborn time and time again in different bodies, gaining knowledge with each earth rebirth. According to him, our body interacts through the five senses with our imperfect world, and it restricts the soul from attaining its full potential. Thus, the soul is good, the body is bad. That takes us to another Greek philosopher, Aristotle. He lived during those 40 silent years, so now we're up to the time when God went silent. These other two were previous before those silent years when God was still on the scene, still speaking through the prophets. So what we see is um, in the apostolic scriptures, we see a big influence on the Gentiles of the first century through Aristotle. And in fact, Paul confronted this Greek culture head on in Acts chapter 17. And you may remember that. In verses 22 through 28 of that chapter, it tells us this. Paul stood in the middle of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I see that in all ways you are very religious. For while I was passing through and observing the objects of your worship, I found an altar with this inscription, To an unknown God. Therefore, what you worship without knowing, this I proclaim to you, the God who made the world and all things in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by hands, nor is he served by human hands as if he needed anything, since he himself gives to everyone life and breath and all things. From one he made every nation of men to live on the face of the earth, having set appointed times and the boundaries of their territory. They were to search for him and perhaps grope around for him and find him. Yet he is not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, for we also are his offspring. As I mentioned earlier, the outreach of the first century disciples to the pagan Gentiles was very successful. And Gentiles came to the faith in multitudes. And as they did so, they brought with them their culture. So the gospel spread to the lands east of the Mediterranean and the believers encountered Platonism. The leaders of the new movement had a decision to make at that point. Learn, or they could either ignore the prevailing culture, or they could engage with it and learn from it. As we see in that passage I just read, Paul chose to engage with it. 
The church fathers, however, took it much further. Engagement is one thing, compromise is another. Since many of them had been trained in Greek thought, they saw no harm in constructing a Christian worldview that allowed for the teachings of Plato. Most of us have heard about Justin Martyr. He believed that Platonists would be so challenged by the similarities between their worldview and Christianity that they would possibly consider conversion to the new faith. Looking back, it appears that what began as an engagement for the purpose of evangelism gave way to debate, then compromise, then finally assimilation. In other words, the intention was good, but when one begins to compromise even a little, it can become a slippery slope that leads to major compromises. I'm sure all of you have heard that saying, the road to hell is paved with good intentions. There's a lot of truth in that. When we begin to compromise on God's word in order to attract others to him, even if our intentions are good, there can be dangerous implications. Second Timothy 3.5 warns us about this. Actually, let's go back verse 1 through 5. Let's read all five of those verses. But understand this, that in the last days, hard times will come. For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, hard-hearted, unforgiving, backbiting, without self-control, brutal, hating what is good, treacherous, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, holding to an outward form of godliness but denying its power. Avoid these people. That is exactly what can happening and is happening when we reinterpret God's word in order to make it relevant to our modern society. I just want you to look at the state of the body of Messiah. Right now, and some of the debates that are occurring with several denominations, and I won't get into specifics, but you know what I'm talking about. Several of the denominations are trying to get their doctrine changed to accept things that God says is sin. The intentions are good because they want to reach out to people, bring them in, and teach them about God. But watering down God's word and its power are wrong, even though what they're trying to do is appeal to sinners. Because when we do that, we underestimate the power of God because the biggest miracle is the power of a transformed life from being in bondage to sin to freedom in Messiah. Hebrews 4.12 reminds us of this. For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing right through to a separation of soul and spirit, joints and marrow, and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. When we water down God's word and tell people they don't have to give up their sins, that they can come to God and be accepted into his kingdom without changing their lifestyles, we completely deny God's power to change them. Now let's get back to the Greeks. This assimilation of Greek culture into the faith wasn't limited only to the Gentiles. Does that surprise you? Anybody who's studied into the early church history has probably come across the name Philo. He was a Jew who lived from 20 BCE until 50 of the Common Era. So he was alive during Yeshua's time and the early spread of the gospel. 
he was a Jew, he also assimilated into Hellenism or the Greek culture. And even though he was Jewish, his education was thoroughly Greek. And that was actually normal for the Jews who lived in the diaspora at that time in areas such as Alexandria, which is where he was from. At the same time, he was a faithful and proud Jew whose life ambition was to marry his religious heritage with his philosophic tendencies because he believed there was continuity between Moses and Plato. Again, there's that goal there, good intention to reach out to people, to bring these people who don't know God into God because they knew, they knew of Plato. Let's bring them in. As I said, motive's good, but many of the Jews of his day were departing from the law of Moses and the scripture in favor of the Greek culture. And that's why he was working so hard to create this compromise, because it would be acceptable to them. And his goal was to teach them that they could still be a religious Jew while also assimilating into Greek society and ways. Do we see that going on in our modern world today? Philo developed Bible commentaries, mainly from the book of Genesis, and was the first to do so by using both the Bible and the works of Plato. And if we go back to the very beginning of history, we read in Genesis 1-1 that God made the heavens and the earth. But in Plato's world, the Demiurge, the lesser God that we spoke about earlier, created the universe, not Adonai. Since the starting point of Plato's philosophy was faulty, so were his ideas stemming from that starting point. In order to explain a lot of what Moses taught, Plato had to fudge. He had to use allegory in order to make his theories work. So this is where it really starts getting interesting and where I think you can really grasp what happened. If you've been a believer for any length of time, I'm sure you've run across the use of allegory in explaining biblical texts. That's a way of representing a situation by giving it a meaning other than a literal meaning. In our modern society, one well-known example of allegory is George Orwell's Animal Farm, which is an allegory of the Soviet era of Stalin in the pre-war years. Now, if any of you are near my age, you almost certainly remember this book. And you also remember having nuclear war drills in your schools, which were pretty much as common as fire drills are today. Virtually every school had a bomb shelter, and the threat of nuclear war with Russia was very real at that time. And because of that, the book Animal Farm was requ required reading for everyone in the sixth grade when I was a student. When you take it literally, this book is simply one of talking animals on a farm. But allegorically, it's political satire. And that's exactly what Orwell had intended it to be. Since Philo accepted Plato's views, he also believed that the physical world was bad and the spiritual world was good. This created difficulties for him when God interacted with man, which he tended to explain by using allegory, something that in his view represented a deeper meaning than the literal meaning. Uh, deeper meanings, have any of you run across that before? Okay, should sound familiar. Terry actually touched on this point last week in his teaching. And why just knowing the deeper meaning of why God established the Sabbath or told us to avoid idolatry is not enough. We have to actually obey his commands to do these things. And rabbinic writings even give us a great example of the danger of falling into the trap of feeling that it isn't necessary to obey God's word if you understand the deeper meaning. Deuteronomy 17, 14 through 20 instructs the people of Israel to avoid marrying with uh, foreigners, 
getting into idolatry, taking multiple wives. I won't read the whole passage for the sake of time. And also told the king that he was not to multiply wives. Okay? But as we know, King Solomon, the wisest man who ever lived, married at least 700 women. Many of them were from foreign nations from which God had forbidden intermarriage. So why did he disobey God's command? Rabbinic writings suggest it was because Solomon knew the reason for the prohibition to avoid being led astray. And as long as he did not allow himself to be led into idolatry, there was no reason for him to obey. He didn't have to. He knew the deeper spiritual meaning. So that's what we talk, we're talking about here with allegory. Now, before we criticize Solomon, we need to stop and admit that the very same thing is happening in today's world. I've heard Bible teachers proclaim that we don't need to keep certain commandments because we have a deeper understanding of God's word than the ancient people did. And we know why we have to keep it, so we don't have to keep it. Much of God's word does have different levels of understanding. That's a given, okay? But we still should not overlook the literal meaning of them. When we throw away the literal meaning in favor of these deeper meanings, we can get into trouble. And that's one of the reasons so many believers today feel that they do not have to keep Shabbat or any other commandments of Torah. And we are running out of time, so we got started late. So I'm going to have to skip ahead a few things here. I want to jump ahead quickly to origin. And if you've taken Torah Club Chapter 6, or Torah Club 6, he was the last church father to be discovered, or discussed in that study. Like Philo, he lived in Alexandria. He had a passion for interpreting the Bible. But there was a big difference. Whereas Philo sought to marry the Orthodox Jewish interpretations with Greek philosophy, Origen was a Gentile Christian. For him, the Hebrew text and the Jewish themes were just the raw data to be processed using the tools of Greek understanding. So he actually would give both, Philo would give both literal and allegorical interpretations of many passages. Origen focused primarily on allegory. That's the reason we see so many of our denominations teaching allegorically, directly from Origen. That was his dominant way of interpretation. And I want to talk about the ram that took the place of Abraham's son Isaac as an example. It foreshadowed Messiah. So to Origen, if it spoke of Messiah, that's all it spoke about. You ignored the literal meaning. But we cannot forget that Abraham and Isaac were real people. When Abraham was willing to sacrifice his son because God told him to, it wasn't just a deeper understanding. It was a real event. God wants us to see that it's not just about the Messiah, but it's also about the love that Abraham, a real person, had for Adonai. A love so deep that he was willing to sacrifice his only son that he had waited for so many years. So there is a literal understanding. Origen ignored the literal. And let's move ahead quickly to Augustine. The process of interpreting the Bible through the use of allegory gets even deeper with Augustine, who lived two centuries after Origen. He's considered to be one of the most important figures in the development of Western Christianity to many Catholics and Protestants, while others view him as the philosopher who infused Christian doctrine with Plato's philosophy. He did some good things. He uh, is responsible for bringing the idea of original sin and our traditional understanding of evil into the faith. 
But he started out as a follower of a cult, and I hope I pronounced this correctly, Manichaeanism. And it's the concept of good versus evil, light versus darkness, body versus soul. But in reality, the cult's beliefs were actually closer to Buddhism than they were to true Christianity. So he brought these beliefs in. He focused again on allegory. And it just, it just got worse and worse. And I hate that we're running out of time, so I'd like to get into some more of this. But what we see is the fall of the Roman Empire. Okay? The ancient wisdom of the Greeks was lost to the world at that time. Islam dominated over Christianity for a time. And then in the 12th century, two Arab scholars, Avicenna and Averroes, rediscovered the works of Aristotle which were eventually translated from Arabic into Latin. European Christianity went crazy over this rediscovered philosopher. So even though it died for a while, it came back. So it's, and it's still there today. We'll talk about that more in the next class. We're going to end our discussion for today with Thomas Aquinas. He was a Dominican monk who lived in the 13th century, so it's getting a little closer now. It's not that far ancient. He picked up the torch and applied Aristotle's thinking to the world of Christian theology. Aquinas, like Aristotle, focused on rational thinking and he incorporated as part of his faith. He's responsible for the Catholic understanding of transubstantiation. And he adopted this view because Aristotle taught that there is more to matter than its appearance. When water freezes, it takes on a different appearance, ice, but it's still H2O, so that's one good example. So we're going to end our class there for today and pick up again on April 6th. The important thing to remember from today's class is that the ideas of Plato, refined by Philo for a Jewish audience, and then Origen for a Gentile audience, with allegory becoming the dominant interpretation method through Origen, became thoroughly entwined with the beliefs of the body of Messiah. Then, when you add in Aristotle's views, some of which were at odds with Plato's plus Thomas Aquinas' theology, we wind up with a very troublesome mix for the body of Messiah. And we're still dealing with that today. So it is now three minutes after 11. So she's back by popular demand. I used this image last time, and some people really enjoyed it. This is our all-wise internet sensation grumpy cat. She wants you to leave today remembering to take God's word seriously and say no to hypergrace. So with that, let's go ahead and close in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we want to thank you for all you've done. We want to thank you for your word. We want to thank you, Father, for your commandments. Help us, Father, that we would never take grace flippantly, that we would realize the price it cost. Father, that Yeshua paid such an such a unbelievable price, so much pain and suffering on our behalf. And so we need to take grace seriously and realize that grace is there not to be abused, but it's to be cherished. It's something very precious, and we want to thank you for that grace. In Yeshua's name, amen.